If you would take your Bibles tonight, we're going to turn to Romans chapter 12. Let me read the text and then I'll have some preliminary remarks I want to make and then we'll get right into the Word of God tonight. Romans 12, and I'm just going to read verses 9 through 13. There's so much more we don't want to or can't really honestly develop at all tonight. I would encourage you to read even more our paragraph tonight in the context of the entirety of Romans and specifically chapter 12. There's so much to be found there, especially when it addresses racism that we're seeking to do tonight. But let me read the text for you. Paul says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. The word disciple is a word that means basically a learner. Um, If you've been in a discipleship group or if you've run a discipleship group, you'll know that that is the case uh, no matter what end of the spectrum of discipleship you're on. None of us are ever arrived to the sense that we've come to the place in our life where we no longer need to learn anything. And I would say for myself, that is true on multiple levels and concerning multiple topics and obviously racism being one of them. Um, As a learner, you learn new things, but you also relearn old things. And you unlearn things that you don't want to hold on to anymore. And as a learner, I experienced perhaps all of those at a meeting we had last night in my backyard or house. I hosted, because the governor says, only 25 people. Most of them were, again, my black brothers and sisters in Christ um, who are here at Faith Baptist Church. And before I... uh, put this message together before I was wanting and desiring to present it, and I do that eagerly tonight. Um, I wanted to be able to consult with them um, as a learner, to really mostly listen um, to their perspective, what they had to say, honestly, how they think, um, how they feel, how those are related, how they see things in life. Um, And so we did that, and we were there for talking at least probably a good hour and a half to two hours uh, together um, before the curfew. <laughs> and uh, so we were able to do that. And, and so I jotted down, before I get into the text, I just jotted down um, five things that stood out in my mind. And, and obviously I probably could have been many more, but maybe the most major things, at least for me, that I learned from my uh, black church family last night in our meeting together. And I, I just wanted to share them with you. And hopefully they might be an encouragement or a motivation for you as they have been for me. Number one, I learned that my black brothers and sisters in Christ are hurting and even at times afraid um, to a greater degree than I ever realized. Um, I think it's fairly obvious if you have a mind and a heart that you realize uh, people are black uh, friends and family members in Christ who go th- in this culture go through events like this, and it's hard on everyone. But I think last night, the degree in which they feel this pain and suffer through it, and their hearts are heavy about it, and 
even more than that probably, um, is more than I realized. And I think it allowed me, because of the lot of stories and experiences that they shared, um, uh, allowed me to feel that and, and understand that to a far better degree than ever before. And I was a very appreciative of that. Um, secondly, I learned that I need to listen to my black brothers and sisters in Christ more intentionally. Um, I have many friends in, in our church um, that are black, and I've had great conversations with them. I've taken mission trips with them. Um, we've had them over for dinner and done things like that. But to take time purposely to intentionally listen about this issue in particular is something that I thought, I, I think, after last night, I need to do more intentionally. And that's why we had the meeting together last night in my backyard. And, uh, and not just listen, I, I should listen more intentionally, but maybe speak more intentionally or specifically. And it's another thing to speak from, it's one thing to speak from the pulpit, but it's another thing to speak in a small group or even one-on-one. And I think in those types of dialogues are helpful. In fact, more than helpful, they, they're needed um, for us as a church and believers particularly uh, to be on the same page. Thirdly, and not in any specific order per se, I, I learned that the systemic racism in America is an extremely dangerous threat, not only to uh, black families as far as moms and dads and parents are concerned, but in a new way, um, to children. Um, Both dangerous in the sense that dangerous physically because obviously the event that took place proves that that can't happen and does. And spiritually because it's so easy to get emotional and upset and rightfully so about the things that take place. And our young people need to know that when they come to church and and that uh, they're white, family members, church members in Christ care about that, and we deeply do, and we want our young people, our teenagers and below, and even older young adults, we want them to know that we deeply care about them and, and these issues, and we understand what's at stake and want to be of help in every way possible that we can. Fourthly, I unlearned that in my mind, at least the way I think, I like to address things clearly, distinctly. I, I'm, I'm very deliberate. I don't like to say things spontaneously. I've seen other people get in trouble doing it. Um, but I learned last night that I don't have to be always someone addressing issues or showing concern for issues in large sermon series or messages, even though I am doing that tonight, which I believe and that everyone I think would agree is a good thing. But just to note that those things are taking place. Small, small sentences, just a few words um, from time to time, to acknowledge those things are taking place and how difficult they are and the suffering and the pain and the hurt that's involved is a very loving thing to do and needs to be done more regularly. And and I appreciate unlearning the fact that I didn't know that I needed to do that, but I do now. And fifthly, I relearned that Faith Baptist Church is a wonderfully diverse and loving family. I've known that since I've been here. The diversity has only grown over the last number of years, and I've always felt the fellowship and the family aspects here obviously not perfect, but are very loving. And it was good to hear from all our family and friends last night at the meeting that that is still true to a great extent, but that we still need to improve on things. And there's always ways 
um, that we can do that together. And so I, I was grateful. It just made me want to go back and work even harder at making our unity such an important value in our church, um, no matter what our races are. So in light of how well, in my opinion, anyways, that the meeting last night went in our backyard, um, I've kind of chosen to make it an event. Um, next week, Lord willing, and I'll put out the information, we'll try to get 25 more, if we're limited to that still by then, of our teenagers or young people. Pastor Laurie's going to help me put that, uh, that together a little bit. And I'm, and I'm sorry if it doesn't include everyone. We're going to try to do them all throughout the summer on this topic and others. And so maybe, you know, we can get you into this or another uh, topic down the road. But we're going to have our young people um, talk about that some more, especially our our black young people from our families here that have questions and have things they'd like to say, and we want to give them a forum to be able to do that. And we're going to do that next week, so we'll be in touch with people. But again, um, we're going to be doing that through all out the summer and, uh, and, and on various topics. Our theme this year is um, our faith and apologetics, and we want to talk about that and how we can work through it together. And so I'll keep you posted, and we'll try to make those events available and have as many people participate as they want and are possible. Tonight, the text I read you um, is important, and, 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 and it, I'm going to share that why I believe it is so when we address racism. Um, let me start off with my main idea tonight, and then I'm going to develop it from there. Racism is a redaction of biblical truth. If you're not sure what the word redaction means, it is the process of editing a text. It's the censoring or obscuring of a text. In other words, things are in a book, you take them out, you remove them, you, you change the wording, you, you eliminate them altogether. Um, racism is not only the censoring or obscuring of the black voice, but also of God's voice. In other words, it's not just stopping from black people speaking the truth about what's taking place, but racism is a redaction of God's voice. Because it completely edits, takes out, leaves out, doesn't tell um, what the God of all creation and of every person in this world actually thinks and has said about the subject of racism. Let me give you a historical example where both uh, black's voice and God's voice have been silenced. Um, I'm not sure if you remember this or you're aware of it, aware about it, I should say, but the slave Bible... It was a Bible that was put together in 1807 and 1808. And it was formally titled, Parts of the Holy Bible Selected for the Use of Black Slaves in the British West Indies Islands. Um, Its purpose was, and there are still a few copies remaining to today, was to exclude texts that could recite, I should say, incite rebellion amongst black slaves and include texts that could foster obedience to their masters. Let me give you examples. Um, In the slave Bible, what was included was the Genesis 37 text in verse 28 that includes Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers and the, the ongoing text about how well he did as a slave and how he obeyed Potiphar and how God blessed him for being an obedient slave. However, 
you cannot find, and there is no account of all of the things that took place and how bad Pharaoh was and how the infanticide of all the children that were slaves and how he had them all killed and how Moses tried to deliver an Egyptian and, and had to use violence and, and bury his body in the sand and, and how God ultimately delivered them through the Exodus. All of those texts were excluded. So in other words, it's only putting in Joseph being a good slave, but excluding how God views it all and how he delivered his people from it. It also includes Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 9, where Paul, in the culture he lived in, told his people who were slaves in that culture, which was about two-thirds of Roman society at the time, to be obedient to their masters. But the slave Bible excludes Ephesians 2, where it says that the hostility has been broken down vertically between God and man, and that has been done because Christ is our peace. And as a result of that, the middle wall of partition, separating Jews and Gentiles and races from one another, that has been abolished. It's been broken down. And God, through Christ and his cross, has made both Jew and Gentile one. And it says in Ephesians 2 that he might reconcile both Jew and Gentile unto God in one body by the cross. That text was excluded. It was eliminated. Lastly, and there are many other examples I could give, but included in the slave Bible was Romans 13. It is entire uh, text in the first part of that chapter about how we need to obey the rulers and the government authorities over us. But excluded, and you'll find no mention of it anywhere in the slave Bible, is our text. Romans 12 and verses 9 through 13 is, wasn't there, and that was purposeful. The redactors of the slave Bible chose to redact the truth of the Bible, and they did so by ignoring and leaving out and not telling the parts of it that did not fit their purposes and agenda when it came to racism and slavery itself. Now, I'm hoping I'm right, and I think I am. None of us here, as Christians, would ever ascribe to Bible redaction. None of us would want or allow anyone to say, here's your Bible and take some scissors, as Thomas Jefferson did in the Gillette Bible, and just cut out the pieces that you don't agree with or things you like. He didn't believe in the supernatural or miraculous things, and so he went through the Bible and cut all those things out. Now, we wouldn't, as Christians, ever tolerate selective quoting of Scripture either. We wouldn't say, hey, you can quote stuff about this, but you, can't, you don't have to quote things about this on the same subject. And although we would never adhere to Bible redaction, the question is, do we adhere to behavior redaction? By that, I mean, we know what the Bible says and the truth about subjects, i.e., in particular, racism, and we, we would never take it out of the Bible, but we, have we taken it out of our lives? I call it behavior reaction. And we, 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 redaction. We, we have behavior redaction because we edit things, not out of the Bible, but out of our lives. We leave it out. We silently ignore it. And the behavior that those biblical truths require of us is left undone. Paul knew that this was a danger as he writes to the saints at Rome, chapter 1, verse 7. Rome in the first century was like many of the metropolises and cities in the large cities in the 21st century in America. 
They were filled with all kinds of different kinds of people, races, backgrounds, cultures, and so forth. And the church that was in Rome and the constituency of their church memberships was a reflection of that. It was, however, like it is today, a struggle for Roman citizens outside the church and even Roman Christians at times inside the church. And Paul writes this epistle or this letter to them to be able to combat and counteract that very thing. And, he, and it's so important that they believe the same thing about how God has brought Jew and Gentile together that he spends 11 chapters doing it. And at the end of it, a doxology about how awesome God is and his ways are beyond tracing out, quoting Isaiah, and how great God is and how he has made a salvation through Jesus Christ that Jew and Gentile, though different racially and otherwise, have been bought, brought to be one through the cross. And he spends 11 chapters doing it and has to stop at the end to worship how magnificent God is because of the vital importance of it. But that's where 12 comes in. You know, here's a great truth for you. Chapter 12 follows chapter 11. And that, that's pretty obvious. But it's for a reason. It's for a reason. Because Paul wants us to know that it's not just our beliefs that need to be the same. But our behavior as a result of those beliefs that need to be the same. And Paul wants us to know that because of the cross... We are on equal footing vertically before each other. I'm not more saved than you are and vice versa. So vertically we're on equal footing. But he wants us to know here's the offset of that, the upshot of it, is that not only is that true vertically, but we are on equal footing horizontally. That Jews are no better than Gentiles. They're not superior in any way. And Gentiles are not superior to Jewish people. And here's why. And he starts calling First verse, 12.1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, brethren, by the mercy of God. Brothers is used twice in our text. And here's what he wants us to know. Because of the cross, we're in the same family. Now, he understood, and so do we, that it's not always easy to get along in the same family. I read an illustration, kind of cute, actually, not too long ago, where kids were asked to write a letter to God about their family knowing that they don't always see eye to eye on everything. And one little boy wrote, Dear God, thank you for my baby brother, but what I really prayed for was a puppy. It's not exactly what he wanted. Dear God, maybe Cain would not have killed Abel if they had their own rooms. It has worked for me and my brother. Getting along as family. Dear God, did you really mean do unto others as they do unto you? Because if you did, my brother is in serious trouble. And lastly, I thought it was cute. Dear God, I bet it's very hard to love everyone in the world. I only have four people in my family and I can practically never do it. And maybe that's how we feel sometimes. I know, we know the belief, right? We know what the Bible says. We're all in the same family. We are all been equal in God's eyes. But sometimes the practice of it, the behavior that should go along with it, isn't what it should be, not even close at times. So for Paul, being a Christian, and by the way, for us as well, is not just limited to my non-Bible redaction. It also includes a non-behavior redaction. So he says, it's not just to believe the same thing. It's not just I'm against racism and I know it's wrong and I'm, I'm really against it mentally or intellectually or my conviction here is. It has to be here. And can I say even more? Here and here and we have to live it out. And so Paul says in very practical, functional ways, 
in Romans 3 through 8, 12, 3 through 8, he says, here's what you have to do. Use all your talents and abilities and the different things God's given to you, spiritual gift-wise, to serve one another. And he talks about that in Romans 12, 3 through 8. And then in our text, he says, it's not just serving one another is crucial, but you have to love each other. And that's where our text picks up in verse 9. Love, let love be genuine. In the very next verse, or next part of the verse, he's going to say, love one another. with." Bro-. So here's what he's saying. Uh, the most important thing you can do to behave like you don't believe in racism, uh, I'm making that particular application, is to live out that truth in your life through love for one another. Now, that's the opening statement, and I'm going to say more about that in a minute, but it's followed by, in verses 9 through 13, believe it or not, 10 participles in a row. 10 of them. Someone has called it the 10 commandments of relationships. In other words, if you love someone, and he's your brother in Christ, you love someone, then all of these participles are going to, they're going to modify what that love would look like. And that, I don't have time to do all 10 tonight in any, you know, lengthy way. I'm going to cover a few of them. But here's what I say. Love is genuine, and it's family, and it's about brothers and sisters in Christ. No matter what their skin color or background, Jew and Gentile in the text in particular, he says, but it looks a certain way, and here's what it looks like. Because tonight, here's what we know. Greg Floyd's death was a travesty and a tragedy on so many levels. Nationally, socially, legally, relationally, and of course racially. It is both a vertical and a horizontal problem. But deeper than that, it is a complete lack of love. Now, the majority of people, I believe, inside and in perhaps even outside of the church, would believe this. They would give their assent to it. They might even say something like it. But do we behave like racism is wrong? And if not, what do we have to do to change? What kind of love do we need to adopt in order that we can see things are different outside and inside the church. Well, Romans 12, 9-13 is a good place to start that will help us move even further in that direction than what we are. So what does it look like when we love each other, even if we are different than each other, particularly when it comes to our race? How can we love our black brothers and sisters in Christ, particularly tonight, especially during a very difficult time in our nation and in their personal lives and families as it is right now? Well, I think the text gives us two of them. Two ways to love each other inside and, inside and outside the church is these Ten Commandments. And the first one, I'm going to break it down. There's only two in, in my outline tonight. The first thing you will need to do in order to do that is to have a loving attitude. And that's where verse 9 says, let love be genuine. And, and the word genuine means authentic. Um, it means, New King James verse a version says, without hypocrisy. Um, the complete Jewish Bible translates it this way. Don't let love be a mere outward show. The uh, Jewish Bible says, don't let love be a pretense. J.B. Phillips' version, or really more of a paraphrase, don't let love be just an imitation. Living Bible says, don't just pretend you love others, really love them. The Amplified Version says, let your love be sincere, the real thing. 
that word, genuine, sincere, unhypocritical, the one we've talked, it's not a phony love. It's not a fake love. It's not just a superficial love. It's a real thing kind of love. It's only used six times in the New Testament. Four out of the six of them have to do with a sincere love. And the two-thirds of the time when this word is used, it's describing the kind of love that we ought to have for other people. And certainly of all people, Paul knew hypocrisy. He was a Pharisee at one time. He knew other Pharisees. He knew the hypocrisy. that He even called Peter and Barnabas in Galatians 2 out for their hypocrisy when they wouldn't eat with people of a different race or different background, Gentiles. And, you know, and then they, they would eat with them, and then they wouldn't when the Jewish Judaizers came. Unhypocritical love. It's not TV love. It's not a fuzzy feeling kind of love. What we find as we read scripture and in specifically and explicitly in this text is that it's a demonstrable love. It's a love that has an attitude, listen to this, that always, always leads to an action. And that's why the first admonition, let love be genuine, is followed by 10 participles. Because it's not just my framework of mind. It's not just the attitude of my heart. As I have those things and the results of them is a different kind of behavior in my relations with people who are very different, including their race. So here's the, here's the point in a nutshell. Loving attitude about the kind of love I ought to have will result in and should result in in loving actions in the way I live. And he doesn't waste any time jumping right into it in verse 9 because it's two sides of the same coin. He flips over. Let me show you what genuine, sincere, unhypocritical, real love looks like. He says, let me tell you the negative part. It abhors what is evil. And the word is used in a way that it's an ongoing action. It's always, in other words, I'm always abhorring, hating is the word evil. Repulsed might be a good word for it. Recoil from, turn in horror from is a word. See, and then secondly, it says on the other side of the coin, hold fast. Continue to hold fast. But this word is passive, meaning someone from the outside has to help you do it. So here's what I concluded. Genuine love does both. I call sloppy agape only does one. And we think that fighting racism is only hating the evil part. Well, that's definitely half of it. But it's not just hating the evil of racism. It's also holding fast to the good of how we love, care, and support people who are facing that difficulty and that problem in their lives. So love hates and love holds. It hates the sin of racism. Our love must be a response to God's love and a reflection of God's love. And God's love, if you read scripture carefully, and you know this to be true, God's love does not overlook sin and simply look the other way. And neither can we. We have to stop, if the case may be true, that we are turning a blind eye to these things, and we have to be able to say that we are intentionally addressing it, both personally and corporately. As I was reading this text today, I came up with this thought and I wrote it down and wanted to share it with you. If you have walked down the Roman road, then you can't walk down the racism road. See, if you've walked down the Roman road and you've come to Jesus' cross and you've come to understand him as your savior, then you can't be walking down the racism road. You know why? They don't go together. 
They don't go together. So he says this, abhor what is evil, hate racism. But he says at the same time, hold fast to what is good. Hold fast is a word that means literally to glue together, to cement something, to attach firmly to it, he says. So it's a fight against racism and it's a fight for everything that stands for good in its place. So we have a very diverse church and a very diverse school. Uh, we, have, we fight it by having mosaic and shower trailer and services here at our church that emphasize um, the diversity that we have. Missions Month, Panama headquarters, missions trips, works that we've done with the church and school in Haiti and other places. And we continue to do more and more and more. Why? Because it is God's design and God's purposes that we not only fight against it, but we fight for the good and we hold on to it and we keep building it into the lives of individuals in our church because of how vital and important it is. In World War II, after the war was over, a group of German students got together and volunteered to help rebuild a cathedral in England. Um, they had been, the, the cathedral had been severely bombed by German air raids um, over London. And as the work progressed, um, they became concerned about a large statue of Jesus that was there in front of the church. Um, because the arms of Jesus were outstretched, and beneath the inscription uh, read this Come unto me, Jesus' invitation. But they had a particularly difficult time trying to restore the hands of Jesus as his arms were stretched out, and, and they had been completely destroyed in the air raids. And so after a lot of discussion and hard work, they decided to let the hands remain mission, missing on the statue. And they changed the inscription to read this, Christ has no hands but ours. And I thought about that, and I said, you know what? Our hands are the hands of God when we hold on to that which is good. And we don't let the evil and the corruption and the rottenness of racism around us loosen our grip. We don't let the world around us unglue us from God. Because the passive verb means that God is helping us. As we get involved and as we hold on to good, God cements our hand. And he attaches it firmly to the good things that can change our children's lives and our country's life and perhaps even our world's life. And so he says, here's what you do. He says, you abhor what is evil. You hold on that which is good. And then he says, literally, he says, brethren, he says, you got to love each other. Literally, he says, brothers, love each other in a brotherly way, he says. That's what you ought to do. And there's three ver verbs in this text that have the Philadelphia-type background or, or, or um form to it. Philadelphia love, philostorge, which is love your brother, and then later philozenia, which means loving strangers when it comes to hospitality. But what he's trying to say is on a horizontal level, here's what we need. Here's what we need. We need a different kind of love. A one another kind of love, verse 10 uses twice and 16 included. So we need a family love, a love that will see people, no matter what their skin color, as family members, brothers and sisters. And what would that family kind of love look like? Well, he makes parallel statements about it using those participles that I pointed out to you. He says in verse 10, here's what you do. Here's what it looks like. 
Outdo one another, showing honor. And the word outdo in King James, New King James, preferring, putting other people first, it literally means to go first, to lead the way, to esteem other people highly, more than yourself. Consider them better than you are. This lack of, kind of this kind of love, this kind of preferential treatment is severely lacking in America and even in our churches. And it strikes at the heart of what racism is all about, is seeing yourself, whether you're white or any other color, as superior to other people because of the color of your skin. In Roman culture, it was an honor-shame culture. So when the Bible says, outdo one another, lead the way in showing people honor, that was an incredibly subversive idea. I mean, in the Roman culture, you definitely put yourself first and your family first and everybody who was of your race first. I mean, in Roman society, you did not hang around with people of different races. You did not hang around with people of different social statuses. You didn't, nobody did that until Christianity came along. And Paul is calling on these Jews and Gentiles. He's, he's calling on today for us as black and white and every other race. You know what he's calling on? He's calling on us to lead the way in America. He's calling on us to go first in our culture where everyone else is waiting for the other person to go first. He says, here's what I want you to do as a Christian. Ready? You want to have, how to start solving racism? You take the initiative. You show the mutual love and respect. You be subversive in your culture by doing what no one else is willing to do. So let's do that together. You know, look at the rest of the participles in the passage. All the action verbs of how we show love. Not just talk about it and say it, but we show it. See, let's you and I take the lead. Let's go first in honoring other people of other races above ourselves. Let's honor them. Let's think that they are more important than we are. Let's go first and show the initiative as he says, you serve the Lord. You serve other people. You become the one that gets down below them and you serve them. He says, be fervent in spirit. You know what the word means? To boil over. It means to get hot. It means to have an intensity about you. Let's just not do it because we have to. Let's not just help solve the racist problem by, because we, it's our duty. Let's do it with intensity as individuals and as a church. Let's do it because we have a love for it that boils up on the inside and it can't help but spill out over into other people's lives around us. He says, and don't be slothful. On the other side of it, don't be, don't be lazy. Here's what we need to do. Crank it up a notch. Work harder at it than we've ever worked before. Go the extra mile. Don't wait to be asked. Spend the extra dollar, the extra time to make this a big difference in our culture, in our churches, he says. Let's lead the way in patience toward one another. He says we need to endure these things. See, I'm not going to be the one to first criticize someone or judge someone. Those may be necessary things, but that's not my first response. You know what I'm going to lead with? I'm going to lead with endurance and patience. I'm going to talk with people. I'm going to get their understanding. I'm not going to be defensive, and I'm not going to first argue with things. You know what? And I'm not going to go to the social media to prove my point. Instead, I'm going to talk with people not bash people or email or 
Facebook back and forth to each people so everybody else can see how foolish and sinful we are. Let's be the first. Let's go out of our way to lead the way and stop the defensiveness and learn in humility from one another. Let's be first, it says, to see the needs of our family members. He says, distribute your money to the saints. Let's look around at church when we're here and we come back. Let's understand what everybody in, the, in our church is going through, whether they're white or black or Indian or Asian or Hispanic or any other, he says. No people, not just the people who are like you, not just the people who look like you or sit near your pew, he says. No, be the kind of love, he says, the unusual kind of love, the God kind of love, that no matter what color people are, we are there to help them financially and otherwise as they need it because we know what's going on in their life. Why? Because we have relationships with them. Let's outdo one another, shall we? Let's outdo one another in showing hospitality to each other, having people over for dinner, having families together, have our, 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 our kids play together and pray together and love one another. Let's seek each other. It says, to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You see, all of those things and all those participles are intentional. They're relational. They're emotional. And most of all, they're biblical. You know why? Because they are exactly what God does. It's what he's like. See, my friends, that's our aim, individually and collectively, is to be like him and to show his love and his way to others who are not like us, whether it's the color of their skin, their background, their status, or any of those other things. You see, the old song, the spiritual song says, they will know we are Christians. How? By our love. Not our Facebook posts. Not what we say as much but by our love, love that is in action. That's what Faith Baptist Church, that's what our families, that's what our individual lives need, about, need to be about. And when that happens, we will make a dent, a transformation in the problem, the perpetual systemic problem of racism in America. But it's gonna start with you and me and our church. Let's take the lead. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to not just have a genuine love in the form of an attitude. Oh, that's important because that's the foundation. But may it overflow. May it spill over into loving actions. And and, and Father... It's not loving actions that probably are going to be put on the news programs, written a book about it. Now, we're not looking to get our names in the headlines or on the marquee for those things. It's simple things, everyday things, how we treat one another, talk to one another, having people over, helping them, providing for them, sitting with them at church, Getting together as families, talking together intentionally, listening to one another, hearing one another, and so many, many more things. Father, we pray that we would be the leaders in it, that we would outdo one. If there's going to be a competition, let it be for this. Let it be for this.
Father, your word says in Romans 5 that you have shed abroad your love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. May that heart love become hands love. That we might be your hands and your feet to a world inside and outside the church that desperately needs it. Love others through us for your glory alone. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.